Oh, that God would help us get to that place that we trust him no matter what. If your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5, this is about the 11th installment or so in a series of sermons on the Beatitudes, the prelude, if you will, to the longest sermon in the Bible. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to back up a few verses as we get into our message today to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone out into the wilderness and been tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, he has come back. He has called some of his first disciples uh, to follow him. And then in verse 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. This isn't Israel anymore. It's the same Syria that's on the map today. Um, uh, his fame went all the way there throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments. And those which were possessed with devils. And those which were lunatic. Those that had the palsy. And he healed them. He's in Galilee. That's the northern part of the nation of Israel. It is the more rugged part of the country. Uh, it is the more out-of-the-way type place uh, in the land of Israel. And yet he begins his ministry there, going from synagogue to synagogue. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he's working miracles. And uh, he's doing things that have never, ever been seen on that scale in the history of of the world. So naturally, his fame began to spread. This is happening without the internet. This is happening without the printed page uh, or anything like that. Uh, it is word of mouth. One person is, is healed and goes back and tells their relatives in their hometown uh, about this Jesus of Nazareth who healed them. And other people go and find out where he is and they get healed. And it, 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 uh, it, it just snowballs till verse 25. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, that's the northern part of Israel, from Decapolis, that's a region on the east side of the Jordan River, from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan, that's all the way south, an entire nation and beyond is attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ and multitudes are following him. And if you think about it from a human standpoint, rightly so. These are people that do not have access to very good medical care to begin with. And here all of a sudden is somebody who is healing people of every disease. The Bible said all sick people. Um, I, I had a, a team of doctors uh, and nurses working with me the other night. Very kind, very patient, trying to be as thorough as, as they could be. The doctor very kindly at, at, at about 2.30 in the morning he said, uh, I, I've run the test. And, and he said, you told us up front that what the tests were going to come back and, and they proved you to be right. Um, and, and I have to concur with everybody else that it's not the heart, he said. And uh, my inclination is to say, well, if it's not that, then it must be this and, and so forth. He said, I am almost never stumped, but I'm stumped. 
He said, because everything I would tell you to look into or that I would suggest we do has already be, been done and they found nothing. There's no, no answer. I'm stumped. Do you realize even in our day of modern advanced medicine, uh, even that can only take us so far. And they'll come across a situation that says, we don't know what to do. The Savior never had such limitations. The Bible said they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and he healed Amen. them. Nobody went home with a, a prognosis and said, look, uh, we know what it isn't. We just don't know what it is. Uh, take two of these and call somebody else. Nobody ever went home from an encounter with Christ like that. He healed them all. And now you've got these multitudes who are following him. There is a name for a follower. It's a Bible name. It is called a disciple. Multitudes are following the Savior. He is big news. Verse 1 of chapter 5, and seeing the multitudes. This is the same crowd that ended up uh, 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 being discussed in chapter 4. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, we've got the idea this was only the original 12, but it's not. It's the multitudes. It's all of those people who the Bible says in verse 25 of chapter 4 that followed him. Great multitudes. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind. The Savior is teaching. It's an open air setting. And it'll be the longest recorded sermon in the Bible. Gathered around him are these multitudes that are beyond our ability to quite picture that many people gathered in one place to hear a man speak. Many in that crowd have been healed of diseases. Many in that crowd were demon-possessed, and the, the Savior has delivered them from demon possession. These are people who, if you will, owe a great debt to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already blessed and changed their life in a very positive way. These multitudes are gathered around, and the Savior opens his mouth, and the Bible says, and he taught them, and he starts out with that section we refer to as the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes. Um, it, it, uh, as we've studied in the last, this is the 11th installment, it's been spread out over nearly four months because we've had guest speakers in and out uh, and so forth. Uh, but we found out that the Beatitudes are not just a bunch of light, little, pithy sayings, are they? A stitch in time saves nine. Thanks, Ben Franklin, but, but the Beatitudes, boy, they rise far above that. They are challenging. Uh, I have read this portion of Scripture dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the 50 years that I've been a Christian, um, and I've always been challenged by this portion of Scripture, but never more so than in the last few months of preparing this series of sermons to, to bring on a Sunday morning. Uh, I'm finding out that the Savior set forth some, uh, some uh, real high standards for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We often talk about, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. Would you understand? Grace has a whole lot higher standards than the law ever did. See, the law just regulated outward behavior. Grace says, you 
it's not just what you are on the outside that counts, it's what you are on the inside. And is it not true that that's where our greatest battles are, those, those inner ones that go along? So the Savior paints this picture. Now, there's great multitudes there. The sermon's gonna go from Matthew 5 through Matthew 6 and end at the end of chapter 7. All of them very lengthy chapters. This is a long, long sermon. In my mind's eye, I've, I've tried to ask myself this, and I can't find a definitive answer in Scripture, but I have to wonder, at the end of that sermon, did he still have a multitude of people there? Were they still interested once he showed them what a real disciple looks like? We have evidence from another place in Scripture uh, of, of what most likely took place here. If you can mark your place in Matthew 5, go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you are familiar with this chapter, this is where the Savior feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with nothing more than five small loaves of bread and two small fish donated by a, a, a young lad that came to hear and preach. 5,000 men were fed and the Bible says they were all filled and they had 12 baskets full of fragments that were left over. Uh, now look, if you would please, verse 22. This is the follow-up to the feeding of the 5,000. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. So there's a little interlude. The disciples go out on, on the sea. Jesus walks on the water in the middle of the night and so forth. That The same crowd that got fed the day before showed up again. I mean, they just saw a miracle. Can you imagine what the talk was around that region uh, of Israel? Uh, Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. They all show up. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Doesn't that sound awesome? They're looking for the Savior, seeking for Jesus. And so they, they've, they've, they've all crossed the sea of Galilee. They're back at Capernaum and so forth. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? When, when did you get here? And even how did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles. Evidently, there was more than just one miracle performed with that crowd, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So here's this multitude, same one that was there the day before, okay, that just saw the miracle, were partakers of that. They come and rabbi, they're seeking for Jesus. They're addressing him as rabbi, as master, as teacher, and, and it all sounds good. And then Jesus just kind of blew them all away. He said, I know why you're here. You're not here because you saw God do something amazing. You're here because you're hungry again. You're here hoping for more bread and fish. I know why you came. You don't really want me. You don't really want the truth. You just want another free lunch. 
Now, that's how he's starting the meeting with the multitudes. Um, and so he starts into a, a sermon in John chapter 6. It starts in verse 27. Again, it's a very long sermon. Uh, and he's going to talk about, I am the bread of life and you have to have me or you cannot have eternal life uh, and so forth. And he, he, he gets them back to uh, the reality of this whole thing that it's about discipleship. It's about following Christ and it's about following Christ for the right reasons. You're here in church today, and that's commendable, and I'm thrilled to see you. I'm, I'm happy for every single person uh, that is here, but if we were to be able to reveal everybody's innermost reasons why we're here, we're all here for different reasons. Some are here because they didn't get a choice. Mom and dad said, it's Sunday, we go to church, period. God bless moms and dads that are still moms and dads, and they run the house instead of Billy Bob. Amen? And all the Billy Bobs are not amening right now, but you ought to be that if you, if you have a parent that said, when the doors are open, we're in church. But there's some here, and you're only here because mom and dad said you have to be here. There's some are here because this is where your friends are. And, and you're looking forward to seeing your friends and, uh, you know, you've been away from school and activities or whatever and, and you, you, you enjoy the fellowship. And there's not anything inherently wrong with that. Uh, but if your friends aren't here, will you still be here? There are some that are here because you've had a rough week and you just feel like the devil's been beating you up every time you turn around and you just know you need something from God. And you came and you're hanging on to every song, you're hanging on to every prayer, you're hanging on to every handshake, just seeking some help from God. We're all here for a lot of different reasons. Some noble and godly and God-honoring and others maybe not so much the savior leveled the crowd out and said I know why you're here and it's not because of God it's because you want some bread he preaches them a sermon tells them what fellowship's going to be all about look at John chapter 6 verse 66 666 and when you read the verse it almost stands out like wow from that time, this is after the sermon, from that time, many of his whom? Disciples. His so-called followers went back and walked no more with him. As long as it's about bread and fish, we're in, we're in this thing. But when it comes to following Christ and being like Christ and living for Christ and trusting Christ no matter what, we're not so much interested in that. And this multitude of people, remember it was 5,000 men the day before, plus women and children. That group has found him again. They are there. They walked away. The only ones left are his 12. And one of them wasn't even saved. Then said Jesus unto the 12, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ the son of the living God we tend to make fun of Peter just a little bit because God chose to record his ups and his downs his moments of strength and his moments of failure can I caution us to be careful about that we ought to be thanking God that we weren't alive when this happened and God was writing down our ups and our downs how many have some failures you'd rather not be in the Bible? 
for all eternity for everyone to read. Um, for all of Peter's ups and downs in his discipleship years, um, Peter made a wonderful profession of faith here. I think a very heartwarming uh, one. He said, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else for us to go to. Not because you give us bread, not because you heal people, not because you walk on water, not because you calm storms, but because you have the words of eternal life. Amen. Peter nailed it. For all of his faults and failures that God would work through in his life and so forth, Peter had it right. My point in, in, in uh, helping you see this this morning is the multitudes came, but usually for the very wrong reason. And we go back to Matthew chapter 5, and we've, we've walked through this amazing uh, group of verses called the Beatitudes, and we found out that the marks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ go far beyond the length of our hair, the thickness of our Bible, or anything like that. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with standards. The Bible does talk about them. Uh, and, and the Bible talks about our conduct and our conversation and all of those things. But the Beatitudes don't even go there. The Beatitudes go straight for the heart and say, this is what a disciple looks like from the inside out. I cannot speak for anybody else in this room. I have found myself humbled and convicted over and over again, not just in the preparation, but even in the presentation of these messages, the Holy Spirit sometimes is tapping me saying, are you listening to yourself right now? Are you listening to yourself? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm making sure everybody else does. Now, I'm, I always try to listen to him. They're convicting things for us. I'm wondering when he was done with this sermon, how many disciples were left? I wonder how many were there. I mean, they all came because of the miracles. We know that's why they followed him. Matthew 4 is clear about that. After the sermon on, on true discipleship, I wonder if there was another exodus like there was in John chapter 6. I want you to consider a, a few thoughts this morning. We, we are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the faith hall of fame. That's what I've always heard it called since I first got saved. Uh, it goes all the way, you know, back to Noah and Enoch and, and through the Old Testament saints. Uh, and it doesn't go through all of them, but it lists some of the highlights, the people that, that we would all recognize those names, men and women alike, uh, who the Bible says that everything they did for God, they did by faith and through faith. And they are held up as examples for us. I challenge you today to go home uh, maybe sometime this afternoon, and uh, pull out your Bible and read Hebrews 11. It'll only take you four or five minutes. It is not a lengthy chapter. Just read it through, and as you do, take note of, uh, of these people that are listed up, held up to us as the heroes of the faith, and you will find out almost to a person that they were a very small minority in their day. Sometimes they were the only one who loved God. They were the only ones who served God. 
and yet they're held up. This is an example of faith. And yet here we are today and we want, we want the Christian life to be like a party and, and we want it to be all fun and games and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, there are, there's joy in serving Jesus and, and there's a joy in the fellowship of God's saints and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the reality of the Christian life uh, is, is uh, I think, summed up by Lester Roloff. It's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. We're, we're called to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ to put on the whole armor of God for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and we, we've got to get our mind, uh, mindset back to the word of God and the reality of what it means to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere does that stand out to me any more in the Beatitudes than as we come to the last one. Verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes started in verse three with theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that person poor in spirit, that person who realizes I cannot do anything without God. On my own, I'm insufficient. And, and I'll never measure up without the grace of God at work in my life. And it starts, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We come to the final of the Beatitudes, and we're back to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the first verse and the last one are saying all of this and everything in between. This is what the disciples of the kingdom of heaven look like. This is so different, though. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven I want us to consider the type of person that sees persecution as blessed I want to I want to consider this morning for my benefit and, and hopefully for yours what kind of a believer has grown to a place that when they're persecuted for righteousness sake they rejoice and they're exceeding glad. They're not throwing up their hands saying, this isn't fair, and, and God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have let this happen to me. These are the kind of people who have lived for God. They have been a follower of Christ, and there's been a price to pay. We've looked at, at, at other times. The Savior said, marvel not if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. The disciple is not above his master. He said, just, just understand it. In this world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Amen. So the Savior warned us. Uh, Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 3, yea, and all, that word all ought to be circled in a Bible, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, that verse doesn't ring very exciting to the person who's in it for the party who's in it for the activity, who's in it for the fun. Uh, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why? It's a spiritual warfare. We are light in a world of darkness. Uh, and we've got to understand that when we look at these, these last three verses in the list, it's all one beatitude. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. We are seeing, if you will, the spiritual maturity of a believer brought to fruition. This is where the believer is really declaring before everyone, I'm the real deal. I'm the real thing. 
these people that the Savior refers to as blessed. Let me share a couple things, one point from each of the three verses, 10 through 12, that we're looking at this morning. First of all, these people, they are demonstrating a very deep commitment to the cause of Christ. A deep commitment. The word commitment is a word we don't like so much today. We want benefits without commitment. We have turned into a, and I don't mean this unkindly, we've turned into a welfare society where everybody's got their hand out saying, feed me, pay me, buy me, give me, take me. I'm going to sign a loan to go to college. Now you need to pay it off for me. Uh, that's, that's, that's our culture here. And the idea of being committed to something that's bigger than ourselves, to something important, that just is a hard thing. Uh, I think Brother Tim made mention in Sunday school that uh, after COVID, this is a nationwide, the statistics are coming out, 15 to 20% of people that filled churches like ours before COVID never came back to church. Never came back to church. Commitment somehow was either missing in the first place or got misplaced somewhere along the line. But these people that the Savior's describing with this, this blessedness, he said, these are people that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse number 10, they are committed to the cause of Christ. In April of 2004, Americans woke up to a news headline that pretty much shocked everyone. If you remember the history, if you were live at that time, on September 11, 2001, we had the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, uh, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania by Muslim terrorists. And America found itself um, at war with a, a, a massive enemy. And uh, America banded together, and at least for a little while. Uh, we were no longer Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. We were Americans. Uh, we were devastated. We were burdened. Uh, and all of those things. And uh, during this time, a lot of people made some decisions along the way. Uh, mention was made in the Sunday school hour, the Sunday after 9-11. This church was packed to the gills with over 500 people crammed into this space. Uh, and it was that way in churches of all kinds all over the country the Sunday after 9-11. It lasted for one Sunday. Curiosity and commitment are two different things. There was a young man, he was about, at the time, he was about 25 years of age. He was a football star. He played safety for the Arizona Cardinals. His name was Pat Tillman. Pat was born in 1976. Uh, Pat was a rising star in the NFL. Um, in in uh, the year 2000, he was named to Sports Illustrated's All-Pro Team. He was offered a $9 million contract uh, to move from the Arizona Cardinals to another team. I believe it was uh, St. Louis at the time. Uh, he turned that down because he was loyal to his team and so forth. And uh, he was in negotiations, uh, and all they needed was his signature with the Arizona Cardinals for a $3.6 million contract. They don't give away that kind of money for someone who's not very good at the game. 
I've yet to be offered even half that much to play for any of those teams. Uh, he was a rising star uh, and, and so on and so forth. But September 11th changed everything for him. And about eight months after the attacks uh, on our nation, Pat Tillman and his younger brother Richard both went and joined the United States Army. 2003, both brothers uh, completed uh, Army Ranger training, which is like the Navy SEALs version in the Army, uh, and so forth. And almost immediately, they were both sent to Iraq. We were at war. Uh, it, things had already started. He was a man who said, I have to do something. He was a man who was committed to the cause of liberty and justice. And his story made headlines when he renounced the Arizona Cardinals, turned down $3.6 million uh, to go across the, the other side of the world and fight in a war that someone else started because he believed so passionately in the principles of liberty, justice, and freedom. And on that respect, he was a remarkable young man. While a lot of others uh, went back to life as normal, he said, can't do that. I can't do that. Tragically, on April the 22nd, 2004, Pat Tillman lost his life on a battlefield in Iraq. It was learned about a month after his funeral that it was actually a friendly fire incident. And he gave his life. He lost his life for a cause that was bigger than himself. America mourned the loss of a hero. By the way, I believe rightly so. I believe we ought to mourn the loss of every one of them. America lifted him up. Uh, I, I was going to try to read the list of things that have been uh, put in place in his name since he passed away, but the list is too long. We would be here too long just to read about the foundations that were started, the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been, been raised uh, to help uh, with military families who've lost a loved one and, and hospitals that have been funded, law schools that have been funded. The, the list goes on and on that have been done in the memory uh, of this football player told, uh, turned Army Ranger Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman, uh, for, for anything else, he illustrates to us, this is what commitment looks like. Commitment says, I understand what is important. I understand what is right, and I understand what is wrong. I understand what is the best use of my time, my talents, and my treasure, and I give myself wholeheartedly and without reserve to do that which was right. These people that the Savior says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, they are, they are demonstrating a deep commitment to the cause of Christ for righteousness' sake. They're not in it for accolades. Accolades. They're not in it to get a pat on the back. They're not in it for recognition. They're in it because it's right. And it's right because it's in the word of God. And they are committed to that. And it does not matter whether they are liked for their commitment. It does not matter whether they're hated for their commitment because people's response isn't the measuring stick of their commitment. Uh, their, their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the one that determines that for them and they've got a commitment that nothing else can shake turning your bibles to first peter chapter 3 first peter chapter 3 i referenced this passage last week but we're going to pick it up in verse number eight finally be all of one mind that means get along with each other 
having compassion one of another. Love is brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. That means be nice to people. Not rendering evil for evil. You don't fight fire with fire. All you get then is a bigger fire. My house is on fire and you show up with a flamethrower, go home. Okay? Not rendering evil for e evil or railing. That means an accusation, a criticism for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Do you understand Peter's quoting the Sermon on the Mount? Um, and he said, that's how you're supposed to be. For he that will, uh, knowing that ye are thereunto called, this is the calling of a believer, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Knock off the dirty talk. Knock off the double entendres. Knock off the critical talk, the backbiting talk, the gossiping, the lying, all the rest of it. Uh, the Bible says, uh, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips that they speak, no guile. Let him eschew evil. That means shun evil with a passion. I mean, shove it away from you um, uh, with all of your might and do good. It's not just the absence of evil. It's not, we don't, it's not just we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't date the girls who do. Uh, it's not just what we don't do, but do good. Follow the Lord in every area of your life. Let him seek peace and ensue it for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his prayer and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil he's watching us he's watching us and he sees you trying to do right for the right reasons he sees you doing right consistently that commitment is there and and the Lord's ears are open to your prayer he's just waiting for you to ask he's he's been watching what a blessing he goes on and, and says, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? You say, but wait a minute, pastor. Persecution's uh, part of the history of the church. We can even go back in the Old Testament. Uh, Joseph got, got sold as a slave by his brothers because he did good. He got framed for a crime he didn't commit by Potiphar's wife because he did good. David got chased around the countryside for years by King Saul because David did good. Uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fiery furnace, Daniel into the lion's den. Isaiah was put in a, inside a hollow log and sawn in half by King Manasseh. Uh, and these were righteous people. These were godly people. These were people that loved God. Now Peter's saying, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But see, Peter's got a bigger goal in mind. Because the Savior taught and said, don't fear him who can harm the flesh. Don't, don't even fear that. Farm him. Uh, you, he said, you need to fear that person that can uh, ca cast the soul into hell when all is said and done. That's who you really ought to be afraid of. Uh, when Peter's saying, who can harm us? Actually, nobody can. Amen. The worst thing that can happen to me is I'm going to heaven. Ta-da. If you're saved, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. We're going to go to heaven. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. Peter's quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, you just be ready because people are going to notice that you're different. People are going to notice something about you that, that isn't average. And they're going to want to know what you've got that is so important. You be ready to tell them about the Lord. Having a good conscience. 
that whereas they may speak evil of you as of evildoers, do we not live in a day where evil's called good and good is called evil? Um, he said, they're going to they're gonna see you as the bad guy. He said, but they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The day or come that uh, you're going to stand before God with rewards and they're going to be on their face acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're no longer going to be mocking you. They're going to be envious of you. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So Peter echoes the same truth that the Savior gave in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Peter was one of those who did lay down his life for Christ. Uh, these people back in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to pick up, have to pick up the pace just a little bit. They demonstrate a deep commitment to the cause of Christ. Number two, look at verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Last three words in that verse, church. For my sake, these believers demonstrate a deep love and loyalty for the Savior. For my sake. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Paul said very succinctly in Philippians 3, 7, what things were gained to me, everything the world had to offer me, everything I'd already accomplished, all those things, I counted loss for Christ. Christ is the most important thing. Why? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul said, nothing matters to me than Jesus, because Jesus has done everything for me. When I was a, a boy, my mother subscribed faithfully to the Reader's Digest magazine. How many are familiar with that? back when people used to actually read things. Um, but it, every month it showed up at our house and so forth. And so as uh, from time I learned to read, at first it was just, you know, the humor and uniform and, and uh, you know, the, the cartoon things that I wanted to read. But I started finding out they had some pretty good articles in there. And I remember when I was probably in upper elementary school, I read an article um, that, that was in the Reader's Digest that I never forgot. It just one of those things that just caused me to sit down even as a boy and say, that was amazing. It was the story of a young girl who entered high school and uh, she's a very popular young lady. Uh, she was a cheerleader. She was kind of, uh, you know, all of those things, uh, heavily involved in student politics and all of that. And at the end of the year, uh, there was some type of like a, a pre-graduation service. I think they call them baccalaureate sometimes. Uh, even public schools used to have a church service of some type right before the, the uh, official graduation. And it was that type of, of a service that was there. And all the seniors were there and they were all excited. This was part of the process for them. And into the auditorium, the high school uh, gymnasium actually that night, a lady shuffled in the back door all by herself. The lady was hideously scarred. It was apparent that this lady had suffered some type of tragedy that involved being burnt. Hideously scarred. Several fingers were missing. Her lips were missing. Part of her nose was gone. And just everything, a mass of scars, few wisps of hair sticking out. She, she had a 
uh, a hat of some kind on to cover up uh, the scars on her head and she wore long sleeves and, and so forth to cover up everything else on her arms and so forth and as, as she walked in everybody just kind of did the step back we don't do well with things like that sometimes do we part of it is we just don't know what to say and we just don't we just don't know what to do and they're kind of all backing up a little bit and there are hurried glances and there are whispers and so on and so forth because no one knows who she's there for nobody has seen her there before the seniors had their moment they had the program and so forth and when it was over they're all rushing out to see family and friends and so forth this girl that was the cheerleader, this girl that was the student council president, this girl that was you know, probably most popular of the whole nine yards, when she came down off of the, the, the stage where they had the risers set up where the seniors were located, she came down and she made a beeline to the back of the auditorium where the disfigured lady was sitting all by herself. And she wrapped her arms around that lady and she kissed her face and she hugged her and held her tight. Her friends, not trying to be shallow, not trying to be unkind, took her aside and said, why did you do that? How could you do that? Look at her. She said, I, here's how I can do that and here's why I do it. That woman is my mother. When I was an infant, our home caught on fire. My mother got out thinking that my father had gotten me out. I was a baby in the crib. Soon as she realized that I was still inside, my mother, without thinking, ran back into the flames, ran upstairs into my room, wrapped me in the blankets, and ran back out. And by the time she got out, my mother was fully engulfed in those flames my mother spent months and months in the burn unit of the hospital I know what you see when you look at my mother when I look at her I know what love looks like and I think she's the most beautiful woman in all the world I read that story as a fifth or sixth grade boy and it, it still strikes something in my heart when, when I just, just think about that particular incident. These people that are considering themselves blessed for being persecuted for the name of Christ for my sake, these are people who have taken some time to consider, do you understand if he hadn't suffered for me, I would suffer forever in hell without end that is why when the disciples were first beaten for the very first time for their faith when they walked away from the Sanhedrin the Bible says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name these people that the Savior is describing here these disciples are individuals that have a depth about them they're not these shallow here today, gone tomorrow Christians. These are the ones that weather the storms. These are the ones that go through the trials. These are the ones that stand for Christ, whether it's popular or unpopular. And so forth. And the Savior said, these are people that are blessed. They've got this deep commitment to the cause of Christ. They've got a 
deep and abiding love and loyalty for Christ. In verse number 12, finally, they are people that demonstrate a deep understanding of eternal values. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We sing a little chorus, at least uh, teenagers and kids do. I don't know if our kids are still doing it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. How many are familiar with that? If not, we probably ought to get it out and sing it one of these days. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Anybody familiar with that one? When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Anybody? We sang it this morning, so hopefully you're familiar with that one. Okay. Uh, we, we, we say, I, I believe that, that, that eternity is out there and eternity is forever. And this life is just a little blip on the radar. But we live as if this life is all that there is. And, and we act like the, the, this is all that matters. These people the Savior is describing before us, they, they're looking beyond that. They're looking out there at eternal rewards. In John 6, time is a, a, a against me at this point, as Jesus is addressing the multitude and he's, he's laid them out and said, you're not here because you saw God do a great work. You're here for bread. And that's all that it is. He followed that statement up. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Don't be living for the here and now, the Savior said. Live for that which is eternal, that's going to last forever. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, and he's helping them understand that his trials, the persecutions he endured uh, for his faith in Christ didn't cause him to stumble. He wasn't ashamed of them. Uh, he wasn't wishing that he had chosen another course of life. He says very confidently, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Paul saying, whatever we suffer, we do it for your sake so that you'll be blessed, so that you'll grow, so that God gets even more glory out of it all. He said, for which cause we faint not, we don't quit. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, anybody here remember the list of what he calls a light affliction? You know, beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, uh, you know, in, in pains and watching and, and fastings and hunger and imprisonment. He calls that light affliction. You know, we, get, we stub our toe, you know, and it's called the undertaker. I, I think I'm coming home. You know, we, it, that he called that for our light affliction. And here's what he says, which is but for a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, that's everything you look around, the cars, the clothes, the houses, Walmart, the whole nine yards, the Bible says they are temporal. They're not gonna last. They're not gonna last. But the things which are not seen, the spiritual things, he says, they are eternal. When the Savior brings us to the conclusion of the Beatitudes, he's describing some people that have gone from poor in spirit to the mourning, to the meek, to the, to the merciful, to the hungering and thirsting after righteousness, to the pure in heart, to the peacemakers. And now they've grown to the place that nothing can shake their faith. Nothing. 
because they have come to a place of a commitment to the cause of Christ that is second to none. They have a love and loyalty for their Savior that nobody can shake away from them. And they've got their eyes on the eternal prize and not that which is earthly. The Savior made a statement in Matthew 16, 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How many are familiar with that verse? Richest people in our world right now, to my knowledge, none of them claim to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Bill Gates and his wife are avowed atheists. But they're the richest people in the world. They could buy all of us over and over again, many times over, and still not scratch the surface of their, their wealth. I would rather go to heaven with nothing in the bank here, but go to heaven. Because they're making a, they're making a lousy, lousy trade. For what does a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I mentioned Pat Tillman. I believe he's an American hero. I believe he's an honorable man. But there is a dark sadness to the story of Pat Tillman that you probably won't read about very often. He was an avowed atheist. An avowed atheist. He hated the whole concept of Jesus Christ. He was a patriot but he died lost. He was a hero. He died lost. And in the grand eternal scheme of things, he was the biggest loser of all. I don't mean to minimize his sacrifice for our country. I, I hope you understand that. But the Savior said, what, what will you give in exchange for your own soul? Think about it. Think about it. So I asked myself this morning, we are the multitude of disciples. We're all here for different reasons. As we've walked through just the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 in our study of the Beatitudes, when it's all said and done, and the Savior said, this is what a real disciple looks like, where do we stand? We'll be part of the big mass exodus like, I, I think it's nicer over there at the Church of the Open Carnival. I, I'm, I'm just going to, yeah, I, I, don't want this, I don't want this serving Jesus thing. I don't want this commitment thing. What can you do for me? And so the multitudes just melted away like they did in John 6, 66. Will we be 11 men who still stood at John 6, 67, and said, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We're here for the long haul. And by the way, for their ups and downs and their early failures, every one of them gave their last ounce of devotion for the cause and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Ten of the eleven died a martyr's death, and John died under severe persecution in exile. I mean, they proved that last true measure of devotion in every way. And one named Judas Iscariot, saw the miracles, heard the sermon, and still rejected Christ and died and went to hell. So which of those groups describes 
you and I. The multitudes melting away, the, the 11 standing there saying, I wanna be faithful to this savior of mine. Or God forbid that one who saw it all, heard it all, and still never got saved. How many can say in all honesty today, if you were to die this moment, you know for certain heaven would be your home. How many of us are like that? Isn't that a wonderful thing to know?